John chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Hear now the word of God. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you did not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? This is the word of the Lord. Father, as we just sang, it is our uh, request, it's our desire, it's our delight that the breath of God would blow upon us this morning and every day until the day we are swallowed up in your presence by the glory of life. You are the living God. And it's by your grace that you move to give life to dead and undeserving sinners like us. You are the living God and you want to bring us, you will bring us into perfect conformity to that quality. We will exemplify the living God in our lives throughout all of eternity as those who have been made alive together with Christ. Breathe on us, O breath of God. Let us know, Lord, in our own souls, the glory of what we're looking at today, the new birth. Lord, as we give thanks to you for the birth of physical life, this new uh, baby Hernandez and Lord, so many other babies that you've added to our number this year. Um, as we thank you for the physical life that you've given, Lord, we pray that you would quicken these little ones unto spiritual life. That you would bring them to know you in 
truth, Lord, that you would allow your spirit to do its good work of causing your word to sink down into their hearts and minds and to conform them to the image of Christ, to bring them into union with your beloved Son, Father. Would you do that great work in them? And I pray that if there are any in this room in whom you have not done that work, that you would do that this morning. Please, Father, whether, whether because of me as the preacher or because of others as the hearers, I pray that you would not allow your word to fall flat this morning, that it would not come upon deaf ears or hard hearts. God, that you would open ears. And those who have open ears, God, I pray that you would fill those ears with the sound of glory. All who are in your temple cry out glory, Lord. Let us hear the glory that they're singing about as we sit under your word this morning. Let our hearts be soft, Lord. Let us be that good soil that receives your word with a good and sincere heart and bears fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. We pray this for the glory of your name, for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Many of you know of a man named George Whitfield. George Whitfield was a preacher, an evangelist, whom the Lord used during the time period known as the Great Awakening, the mid-1700s, basically. Uh, the Lord used George Whitfield mightily as a preacher and herald of the gospel to bring thousands of sinners into the kingdom. One thing about Whitfield was that he gained a reputation for emphasizing one peculiar note of the gospel message in his preaching. And that note was the note of the new birth. A reporter once came and asked him, Whitfield, why do you speak so much about people needing to be born again? And Whitfield unhesitatingly responded to that reporter saying, because you must be born again. In other words, it is a must, it is a necessity, it's a requirement, it is a, a, a non-negotiable in relation to the kingdom of heaven. If you are going to be a member of the kingdom of heaven, then you have to be one who has experienced the new birth. And let me explain something there briefly, just in case we run out of time and I can't finish this this morning. I mean it when I say you must experience the new birth. The new birth is not a mere decision. The new birth is not cleaning up your moral life. The new birth is a radical change that must be experienced in the life of every sinner who would belong to the kingdom of God. We'll get into that more in a little while. Jesus 
tells us here in John 3 the very thing Whitfield was saying to that reporter. Jesus says in verse 3 of John 3, unless, and in verse 5, unless we have been born again, or born from above, unless we have experienced birth that comes from above, that is birth from heaven, unless we have experienced that new birth, we cannot see the kingdom of God, neither can we enter the kingdom of God. Now that not only makes the experience of the new birth necessary, but it also makes clear that whether we have experienced it or not is eternally significant. Because we're talking about seeing and entering into the kingdom of God. What does that mean if it does not mean passing into glory with God for all eternity? Being with Him, dwelling among Him, God being your God and you being part of God's people, seeing God face to face, all of those glorious realities that Revelation 21 and 22 point us towards, those, those beautiful realities that God in Christ is bringing this world to, this new heaven, this new earth, this new life with God, this new temple, this new Jerusalem, this new experience of eternal life in His presence. Jesus says, unless you've been born again, you cannot receive those blessings. You do not inherit them. So if you haven't gotten it yet, the thesis of the message today, the, really the main thought running through this passage in John 3 is simply this. That in order for anyone to be able to see and enter the kingdom of God, that is, in order for anyone to be saved, to be redeemed, to belong to the people of God, then he or she must experience the new birth. Now, even though the Bible speaks of this experience as being foundational to our eternal state, Really, Jesus in this passage is speaking of the new birth as the fountain from which the rest of the Christian life flows. If this fountain is not opened, then no matter what your efforts are to be a Christian, they will never succeed. Because being a Christian is the fruit, living the Christian life is the fruit of having this radical change take place in your life. If the spring is not open, the water is not going to flow. The living water Jesus speaks of in John 7, John 4. Now, even though the Bible speaks of this experience as being so foundationally important to the Christian life, it's interesting to me that in reality, this topic is one of the most unnerving spiritual realities for many people to talk about. People are very uncomfortable when we start talking about the necessity of being born again, especially when we qualify that by saying, by the way, it must be experienced, not decided upon. I think there are a couple reasons for that unnerving result that comes about from considering the topic of the new birth. Number one, I don't think that many people understand what the new birth is or what it means to be born from above. 
That's why they don't like to talk about it, because they don't understand it. This is why the Barna Research Group finds that even though 80% of Americans would claim to be Christian, which is a problem in itself, right? That is an empty claim, just looking at the state of our nation around us. Even though 80% of Americans claim to be Christians, only 46% of those 80%, of that 80%, only 46% of them claim to have been born again. Now that's a problem. Because Jesus says, you cannot be a Christian unless you've been born again. And yet we have, what is that? Um, 30, 34% of people claiming that they can be a Christian and yet not have been born again. No, excuse me, 54%. What am I? No, 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 no. I was right. 34%. Yeah. No, I didn't do that right. It's 54% because it's, it's 46% of the 80. So 54% of that 80% who claim to be Christian can say they can be a Christian without having been born again. That's the point. Yeah. Believe it or not, I was in advanced math. Now, according to Jesus, that's not a possibility. In fact, I mean, that's having this kind of misunderstanding about what it means to be born again is, is how the rest of Barna's research concerning the similarity or dissimilarity between Christians and the world, that's how they get that research is out of a misunderstanding of what it actually means to be a Christian. Divorce rates, adultery, pornography usage, lying, stealing. Over and over again, Barna results discover that there's no difference between those who, are not, who claim not to have been born again from those who claim to have been born again. That shows a fundamental uh, separation between a proper understanding of the new birth and our utilization of that term. So that's one reason. I don't think people understand it, therefore they don't want to talk about it. But a second reason, and maybe a related reason, is because there is a lack of understanding about what the new birth is, many people do not actually know if they really have experienced it. And therefore, it's terrifying for them to talk about it. There are many genuine believers, people who genuinely have been born again, who still struggle with this whole issue of actually belonging to Christ. There are many genuine believers who struggle so much with the whole issue of assurance to begin with that for them to try to talk about and work through all the details regarding the new birth and trying to discern whether or not it's actually happened in their lives just seems like something that's too daunting for them. It's, it's, it's too intimidating. It's something that they feel they cannot draw near to without being cast into a downward spiritual spiral of darkness. And so, what do they do in response to that? Well, they simply try to ignore it. They don't talk about it. They don't consider it. But let me say clearly, brothers and sisters, that here, and friends, those of you who are not yet believers, let me say clearly that in John chapter 3, what Jesus says here proves that this is not an issue that we can afford to ignore. We can't just not think about the new birth and then hope that maybe it'll go away or it'll just work itself out in time. 
that it'll, it'll all be all right in the end. I just, don't, I just don't want to think about it right now. We can't respond to the new birth like that. Jesus makes that clear in John 3. This is why Jesus thrust this issue into Nicodemus's face and forces him to see that this is one of those ultimate realities that Nicodemus has to deal with. And in doing so, he forces it into our face and says, this is a reality that you and I have to deal with. We can't ignore it. But then, maybe more significant than that, the fact that Jesus addresses this topic in John chapter 3 also proves to us not only that we can't ignore it, but that Jesus doesn't want us to ignore it. Jesus brings this topic up not for the purpose of filling people's hearts with fear and doubt and dread. Jesus isn't trying to confuse people here by talking about the new birth. He doesn't want to make us feel insecure in our relationship with him. Jesus wants us to be totally secure in our relationship with him, which is why he addresses the necessity of the new birth with Nicodemus. Because there's no other spiritual, there's no other spiritual reality that deals with our false hopes and our false assumptions and the way that we presume upon the kindness and forbearance and patience of God. There's no other spiritual reality that attacks all of those false idols and false hopes like the reality of the new birth. And Jesus, in love for us, wants to bring us to this point where we are having every other pillar of false hope chopped out from underneath us and brought face to face with the reality that our salvation depends upon whether or not God accomplishes this marvelous work of His grace in our lives. See, this is where Jesus is actually protecting us by bringing us to consider something that's very often uncomfortable. He wants to jar us out of our false sense of security. He wants to make us feel uneasy so that we begin dealing with the real situation of our hearts. You're never going to do that if you're comfortable where you are. Jesus intends to bring us, by, by focusing us here on this amazing miracle of the life of God being planted in the soul of a man, Jesus intends to give his followers real comfort and to give them everlasting assurance as they see how he describes the new birth and they see the evidence of that new birth in their own lives. So, in light of all of that, <clears throat> for at least the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at Jesus' teaching on the new birth as it's presented here in John chapter 3. And that teaching runs from verse 1 down to verse 21. Uh, the new birth is the golden thread that kind of weaves all of those verses together. And, uh, so we're going to be considering that. Today we're going to be looking at some of the characteristics that Jesus highlights here in relation to the nature of the new birth. I've got five of them. And, uh, but maybe before we get into that, I want to start by making sure that we all understand what we mean or what we're talking about when we are saying or using that phrase, the new birth. What do we mean by that? What is the new birth? Well, there are many answers to that question. And uh, you can find 
people from Benny Hinn to Kenneth Copeland to Billy Graham to John Piper to Jonathan Edwards and John Owen giving you an answer to that question that seemed just slightly different from each other. Some of them more than others. <laughs> what is the new birth? Well, as I mentioned earlier, the new birth is not merely moral improvement, which is what a lot of people think the new birth is. I've been born again. I've turned over a new leaf. I've reordered and restructured my life. I'm a new person. Maybe that is the result of being a new person, but you're not a new person because of your moral improvement. Others, like Billy Graham, will say that the new birth has to do with making a decision to follow Christ. That God will renew you if you are willing to submit to him. It's not really what Jesus says the new birth is here either. According to the Bible, at its core, the new birth is simply this. The new birth, being born again, is the implantation of new spiritual life into a person who is spiritually dead. The new birth is the implanting of new spiritual life as a principle that works itself out from the inside and infects all the rest of that person's life. The new birth is the implantation of new spiritual life into a person who is spiritually dead. Ephesians 1 opens up. You see this clearly in the teachings of Ephesians 2, I mean. Ephesians 2, verse 1, opens up with saying that you and I exist in a state of spiritual deadness before God. Um, by the way, there are no slides for today. I ran out of time. And you guys are just going to have to open your Bibles and thumb through the pages. Man, I know. I know. Shame on me making you open your Bibles. Goodness. What kind of pastor am I? Well, in Ephesians 2.1, we find that every single human being born to the fallen race of Adam is dead in their sins and transgressions before God. What that means is simply that there is no spiritual life or vitality in a sinner in the eyes of God. That that sinner has been cut off from life with God. That sinner has been cut off from fellowship with God. That sinner is seen as being un, um, uh, unhelpful, unable to make any progress in relation to the kingdom of God. They are dead in their sins. They are rotting in their transgressions. And until God performs a work of spiritual regeneration, that sinner will remain dead in his or her sins and transgressions. We are spiritually dead in our rebellion against God. We are rotting away in our sins. And the problem, the real essence of the problem with that, the reason why this deadness is so insurmountable is not only because of the holiness of God that will not accept a sinner like us to come into His presence, but it's also the unholiness of the sinner. Because the sinner is dead in his or her sins and the sinner loves it to be like that. The sinner is dead to God, and God is dead to the sinner, and the sinner would have it no other way. That's the reality of our fallen condition. 
We hate the light. We refuse to come to it so that what is true about us will not be exposed. John 3.19 We feel secure in our deadness and in our darkness and we don't want to be roused up from it. But then, Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 goes on to say that in the new birth, God in His amazing, life-giving grace steps in. And He sovereignly chooses to quicken us and to raise us from our spiritual deadness and sin and to impart to us new spiritual life. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. What's that talking about? That's talking about the new birth. That is the new birth. It's this radical, transformational work that takes place when God unites a sinner to His beloved Son. When God raises that sinner up from being spiritually dead into being spiritually alive. See, the new birth happens when you and I are brought into union with Christ the Righteous One, with Christ the Crucified One, with Christ the Resurrected One. When we are brought into spiritual union with Him, the very resurrection life of Jesus that made Him rise up from the dead begins to course through our spiritual veins and we become new and living creatures in the sight of God. Those who have been set free from our death, those who have been set free from sin and transgression and have moved forward in fellowship with Christ into living life in the presence of God. That's, that's, that's what we're getting at. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about the new birth. We're talking about this radical transformational change that God brings about in the life of every single sinner. Now I want you to know this. If you are one who has been born again in this room, if you have had that new life imparted to your soul, you have experienced the greatest miracle that ever takes place in this world. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 4 through 6, it says that this miracle of God speaking His light into the darkness of our souls. This miracle of God bringing us to new spiritual life in Christ exemplifies more power from God than the very creation of the universe to start with. If you have been born again, you have experienced the greatest miracle that any of us in this life will ever see apart from the second coming and full glorification of Christ's saints been born again, brought to new life. So this is what Jesus is describing in John 3.3 3, when he says we must be born again. He's saying we must be brought into a state where we are experiencing new life with God. And so that's what we're talking about when we speak about the new birth, a supernatural, God-wrought miracle that causes a dead sinner to come to life in Christ. And according to John 3, I'm going to harp on this. According to John 3, unless you experience that, you are going to die and go to hell. You will experience separation from the kingdom of God. I don't say that to be mean. And I'm not trying to be a wrath, angry, wrathful, angry fire and brimstone, fundamentalist Baptist preacher from yesteryear. 
I'm trying to tell you the truth of God's word. This is what God wants you and I to be confronted with. Unless we experience the life of God in our very souls, unless we can say, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, that Christ is in you, we've not yet been born again. Or we may not have been born again. Now, in John chapter 3, Jesus sets out many facets to the nature of the new birth. And I don't know if we're going to have time to go through all of them. I'm going to do my best to get through these five. If we don't make it through, then we will pick up at it next week. Oh, I saw, I saw a little hand over there, and I thought there was a question. I was like, yeah, sweetie. What do you want to ask? It's just me. There are multiple facets to the nature of the new birth that Jesus sets before us in John 3. We'll look at those together. Five of them that I have here. I could tease out more, but I think these five are very clear. Number one, Jesus makes clear that the new birth is not about being religious. The new birth is not about being religious. You see, in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, Jesus introduces this topic of the new birth. And in, and in introducing this topic of the new birth, it's within the context of a discussion that he's having with a man named Nicodemus. Now, verses 1 and 2 gives us some very important information about Nicodemus. And John has purposely put this information there in order to draw attention to something. The Apostle John, the Holy Spirit who inspired him to write this letter, is trying to draw our attention to the character and the nature of Nicodemus prior to having this discussion with Jesus so that we get something. It says in John chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. What are the things we see about Nicodemus here? Number one, we see that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Pharisees were a strict religious sect within Judaism, and they were seen to be exceptionally holy people. Pharisees were as near to perfect obedience to the law of God as a fallen human being could strive to get. You see that, from, for example, from Philippians 3, verses 5 through 6, where Paul himself, describing himself, his life as a Pharisee, he says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. And then he goes on to explain what he means by that. As to the law, I was blameless. That's what Paul says. And that's why it seems so scandalous, by the way, in Matthew 5.21, when Jesus tells his followers, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That was offensive to the ears. of the, That was utterly confusing and astounding. That was an astonishing claim for Jesus to make to people in his day. You're saying, I've got to be more righteous than the most righteous people that I know? You mean my righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of those who devote every aspect of their lives to following after God's holy law? Jesus says, yes. Yes, indeed. Or you're not entering the kingdom of heaven. See, Luke 18.9. Just feel like I'm running some parentheses, some, some rabbit trails here, but they're all connected. Luke 18.9. See, the problem with the Pharisees was not that they sought to live righteous and holy lives. 
That was not the problem with the Pharisees. In fact, Romans 6, 17, that's what every Christian is called to do. Every Christian is called to submit their members as slaves of righteousness. Well, how do we define what righteousness is? Isn't it defined by the law of God? Every Christian is called to live a righteous and holy life. That was not the problem of the Pharisees. The problem with the Pharisees, according to Luke 18.9, is that they trusted in their own righteousness. And they believed that their own efforts were what made them righteous. And as a result, they looked with disdain upon other people. That's what Nicodemus was. Jesus knows who he's dealing with here. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. In John chapter 3, verse 11, we see another facet of Nicodemus, who he was, his character. It says in John 3:11 that he was a teacher in Israel. He was the teacher, Jesus says, in Israel. Now pay attention to that. He's not just a teacher. Jesus says he is the teacher. In other words, he had become so well-known and so well-respected for his understanding of the Old Testament and his knowledge of the Scriptures that he was recognized as one of the primary Jewish scholars of his day. He was the teacher in Israel. You could compare him. He's on par with Gamaliel. right? Acts 5.34. On top of that, verse 1 also tells us that Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. Now, this means that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling council of the Jewish people. That, that was the body of, of men who, who handled the political and judicial issues that would come up within the nation. They were the governing body of the Jews. And so what we learn from all this is that Nicodemus in himself was a very religious man. And then on top of that, notice what it says about him in verse 2. When he came to Jesus by night, it says that he came making a confession of belief in the supernatural reality of Jesus. In other words, he could recognize and discern true spiritual realities about Jesus when he looked at Jesus' life and ministry. In verse 2, it says that he called Jesus rabbi, which at the very least means that Nicodemus sees Jesus as a teacher on the same level with himself because he addresses him as rabbi. It's a title of honor. And respect. And then he also believed and confessed Jesus' divine origin. He says, We know, teacher, rabbi, we know that you were sent from God because no one could do the signs that you're doing unless God is with him. So Nicodemus was religious, he was a leader of God's covenant people, and he also could discern true spiritual realities about Jesus, all the while being an unbeliever. So what Jesus says to him in verse 3, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't address anything that Nicodemus brought up with him. He doesn't respond to Nicodemus saying, Yeah, you, man, Nicodemus, you got it. You discern the truth, Nicodemus. I wish everybody could see what you see. No, Jesus simply responds, by saying, Nicodemus, what you think you see, you still do not see.
Jesus knew his religious devotion. He knew his prayers. He knew his fastings. He knew his law keeping. He knew his counseling. He knew his teaching others. He knew how Nicodemus taught others to observe and obey the law of God. And still, Jesus says back to Nicodemus, that's not enough to make you a part of the kingdom of God. And we learn something very important right here. And it's something that I believe the Holy Spirit and the Apostle John wants us to get. If you've zoned out, come on back. (laughs) Pay attention, because this is really important. We learn something very, very important here. Religion is no substitute for the new birth. Greater, holier, purer, truer, more extensive religion is no substitute for being born again. It doesn't matter how religious you are. It doesn't matter what kind of reputation you have among other religious people. It doesn't matter if you have a wide knowledge of Scripture and you can parse theology with the best of them, it doesn't matter if you can discern true things about who Jesus is and what He came to do. If you have not been born again, then you still are not saved. The tragedy is that in spite of what Jesus clearly says right here in this passage, so many people still think and live as though their religion can cover over the fact that they are still spiritually dead. Man, I just don't know God. Man, I'm just loving my sin. I'm walking in sin. I have no concern for righteousness and holiness. What should I do? Well, I know what I'll do. I'll just start reading my Bible more. I'll just start praying more. I'll start memorizing the Scriptures more. I will start of my own will resisting that sin to the point of shedding my blood and I will get there one day. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is lived out of a fullness. It's not lived unto earning a fullness. So many people think that the kingdom of heaven awaits them simply because they've been good Baptists Good Reformed Baptist, even. Or because they're Spirit-filled Pentecostals or Episcopalians or Lutherans. And they don't hear what Jesus says in this passage, that you must be born again. You must be quickened to new spiritual life or else all of your religion will be utterly worthless. So being born again is not about being a religious person. If anyone could have been a member of the kingdom of heaven based upon religious activity, it would have been Nicodemus. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, you're out, Nicodemus. Until you're born again, you can't come in. Number two, the new birth is not natural. It is supernatural. You see this in verses 4 through 6 of John chapter 3. In verse 4, Nicodemus responds to what Jesus is telling him by saying, wait, wait, I I need to be born again? Well, well, explain, riddle me this, Jesus. How, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born? You see where his logical thinking is going. And in that, you see the quality of his spiritual state. What was Nicodemus thinking about? As Jesus is talking about spiritual realities, where does Nicodemus' mind go? 
physical, fleshly, carnal realities. Now, I don't think Nicodemus is being stupid here, but I do, I do, I do detect a hint of sarcasm. What do you mean, Jesus? I'm an old man. The word Nicodemus uses here is a man between like uh, 40 and 60. So specifically used that way. So I'm, I'm an old man here, Jesus, and you're telling me I've got to be born again? Like what? Do I need to go find my mom and try to get her to give birth to me again? How's that going to happen, Jesus? Jesus answers Nicodemus in verses 5 and 6, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, you missed it. Let me explain this a little more clearly. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is what? It's flesh. That which is born of Spirit is Spirit. In other words, Jesus makes clear here that he's not talking about natural birth. He's talking about a birth that is brought about by the Holy Spirit of God. That's what verse 8 makes clear. Those who are like the wind, those who are born again, are born of the Spirit. So the new birth is not something, in other words, that can be accomplished in the flesh. It's not something that can happen as a result of what takes place in the natural realm. It is a supernatural work that can only be accomplished by the Holy Spirit. Jesus says this in John 6.63 when He's dealing with people who are not believing in the message that He's declaring. And He says to them, the words I say to you, they are spirit and they are life. By the way, it's the Spirit who gives life. And the flesh profits nothing. There is, there is a kind of blessing and profit that can only come from the Spirit of God when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. We can reason naturally about what Jesus has said. We can try to proclaim things in the natural order and natural realm. We can try to order our lives according to everything that is fleshly, humanly possible. And we will never attain to the new birth because the new birth is not something that can be produced by the natural. It has to be produced by the supernatural because it is supernatural. It's of the Spirit of God. But oh, how many revivalists and how many evangelists seem to have completely ignored this reality? Church planning gurus and strategists and emails I get about whether or not my preaching is actually effective from Tithely. I, I, I have not discontinued receiving those emails for one reason. Every time I read them, I feel fire and, and vinegar and rising up within me. I get angry at those emails, and that keeps me alive, I think. But, no, it keeps me remembering. It keeps me remembering what is actually going on in the world outside of these four walls. Anyway. How many churches have sold themselves out to new fads and gimmicks that are guaranteed to win people over? According to Jesus' teaching, fleshly carnal tactics will only produce fleshly carnal results. And we sit around and we wonder why, what's happened to the church in America? Why are there so many people in the church living like they're unbelievers? It's because they are unbelievers, according to the teaching of Jesus. Flesh begets flesh. 
But spirit gives birth to that which is spiritual. And unless we have received a spiritual birth through the Lord Jesus Christ, then all of our endeavors that we seek to, to accomplish in the flesh will be nothing but rot. The righteousness of filthy rags that Isaiah talks about. Isaiah 64, 6. So that's number two. It's not natural. It's supernatural. Number three, the new birth actually brings real change. In John chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus answered Nicodemus and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, when Jesus says you must be born again, born of water and spirit, in essence, what he is saying is, in order to be a believer and a member of the kingdom of God, you must be translated, that is, you must be changed from one state of existence into another state of existence. You must be brought through water. You must be brought through Spirit or else you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus sees here that there is a change in our lives that must take place in order for us to be members of God's kingdom. And that change comes about by being born of water and Spirit. Now what does that mean? To be born of water and Spirit. Well, some people see in this a link, in this link between water and, and the Holy Spirit. They see in this um, a teaching that the spiritual birth can be brought about through, or is to be brought about through, water baptism. That that's what Jesus is talking about here. You've got to be born of water, you've got to be born of the Spirit. How's that going to happen? Be baptized. That's what a lot of people believe. We know Roman Catholics believe that. That's why they call the baptismal font the laver of regeneration. If you want to translate that into what we're using, you want to use a different phrase, the laver of being born again. That's what Catholics believe about baptism. But then also, it's not just the Roman Catholics that believe things like that. I grew up in a church that believed that this was also talking about baptism, or also believed this was talking about baptism. Those of you who, who, most of you probably already know this, but I grew up in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod in Tennessee. Uh, my family was a transplant in Tennessee from Michigan, long before I was born. But I grew up in a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and according to the uh, Luther Smaller Catechism, on which I was reared, uh, there are two questions relating to baptism that, that really capture what they view about baptism. One question is, what benefits does baptism give? What are the benefits that we receive through baptism? The answer, baptism works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe this as the words and the promises of God declare. Mark 16.16 is referenced there that those who believe and are baptized will be saved. And then the question is, how can water do such things? Here's the answer, according to Luther's smaller catechism. Well, it's certainly not just water, but the Word of God in and with the water does these things, along with the faith which trusts this Word of God in the water. 
For without God's word, the water is plain water and is no baptism. But with the word of God, it is a baptism. That is, it is a life-giving water, rich in grace, and a washing of the new birth in the Holy Spirit. That's based on John 3, 5. Now, not overly shocking to any of you guys that I disagree with that entirely. I don't see that connection here in John 3, 5 between being born of the Spirit and being born of water. And there are a couple of reasons why. Number one, Jesus in this context is contrasting things that are born of the flesh with things that are born of the Spirit. In other words, he is contrasting things that can be done according to the flesh against things that can be done according to the Spirit. There are things that cannot be done by the flesh that can only be done by the Spirit. Do we agree that's the contrast Jesus is making here? Well, if we do agree with that, bring that into the context of Lutherans baptizing their babies. If baptizing your baby is what brings him or her into new spiritual life with God, then that spiritual life is not being imparted according to the Spirit. It is still being imparted according to the flesh. Who's doing the baptizing? Isn't it the baby? Or, excuse me, the parents? It's not the baby. Isn't it the parents? Isn't it the pastor? Aren't they baptizing that baby based upon their own belief? That this baptism will bring them into some kind of restored relationship with God, even if they have to own that relationship later by faith, they still believe that that baptism is doing something. According to the catechism, they believe that that baptism is actually containing within it the washing of the new birth and the Holy Spirit. Now, if that can be controlled and manipulated simply by the act of baptizing your baby, doesn't that take away the freedom of God that Jesus talks about in verse 8 of John 3? Where the wind blows where it wishes, and you neither know, hear, it, you hear it sounds, but you don't know where it's coming from, and you don't know where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. If we take that freedom of the Spirit, of being born of the Spirit of God, if we take that freedom of God in causing sinners to be born again, and we lock it into the process of simply being baptized, haven't we stripped away God's freedom in regenerating the soul, and we've turned it into an act of the flesh that is performed by us? That's one reason why I reject that interpretation. Second reason why I reject that has more to do with the context. Uh, what Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 10, John 3.10. And verse 9 makes clear that this conversation left Nicodemus very confused about what Jesus was saying. Now, I find comfort in that, that Jesus was not concerned about Nicodemus being confused about what Jesus was saying. What I mean by that, Jesus wasn't troubled in his soul. He just kept teaching him the truth. But he criticizes him in verse 10 when uh, he says, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Nicodemus is confused about what Jesus is saying concerning the new birth and Jesus criticizes him and says, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? That implies that within the scriptures that Nicodemus had studied and learned and taught to Israel, the Old Testament, 
within the Old Testament, there was clear teaching about being born again, at least enough for Jesus to say, you should know these things, Nicodemus. Nicodemus should have connected the dots between what Jesus was saying here and what God had spoken of in the Old Testament. Now, if Nicodemus had asked Jesus kind of as a test, Jesus, what are you talking about? What should I have known? What, as a teacher, what should I have seen in the Old Testament to make me understand what you're saying about the new birth? Tell me why I shouldn't be confused. If Nicodemus had asked Jesus that question, I think where Jesus would have taken him was Ezekiel 36. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to, but I'm going to read Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. Let me read this so that you can hear in what I read the connection between what Jesus says in John 3 and what God says here. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. The Lord is making a promise related to the new covenant for His people. And He says at that time, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean, and I will cleanse you from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. Verse 26, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to do my judgments. I believe that this is the radical change that Jesus is talking about when He says, you must be born again. This change, this radical work of God that is promised in Ezekiel 36, 25-27, Jesus says that is what needs to be fulfilled in your life if you are going to be a member of God's kingdom. You see those connection points there between water and spirit, right? Verse 25 and 26, specifically 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you. What's that in reference to? What's that talking about? When Jesus says, you must be born of water, what is he talking about? Well, according to this passage, it would seem that Jesus is talking about the need to be cleansed from our sin. That the new birth brings about with it a cleansing from sin that must take place if we are going to be members of the kingdom of God. It must be a real work and the result of God's work in your life. God must wash you with clean water as He promised He would do. He must cleanse you from all your uncleanness and all your idols. And I want you to notice something about this cleansing that takes place. Look at Ezekiel 36.26. He says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I'll take out that heart of stone and I'll put in its place a heart of flesh. In other words, this cleansing from sin, this deliverance from idols, this, this removal of the chains of our sin in the presence of God, Jesus says... The Spirit of God says in Ezekiel, that change is going to primarily take place in the heart. It's an internal change that's going to be wrought by God in the sinner that will deliver him or her from his or her sin. That cleansing takes place on the heart level. In other words, it's not just God removing sin from us externally, like taking us out of opportunities where temptations will rise up or, or taking away opportunities of sinning. That's not what God's talking about here. He's talking about a cleansing that, that will no longer permit us from our hearts to yearn after that kind of sin and rebellion against God. 
There's a cleansing. You must be born of water. That's what Jesus, I believe, is talking about in John 3. An internal cleansing. But that internal cleansing is not, only, it's not everything that Jesus says here. He says you not only must be born of water, but you also must be born of the Spirit. I believe that that is the, fulfill, the fulfillment of Ezekiel 36, 27, where God says, I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. The fulfillment of that is what Jesus is referring to in this change of John 3, 5, where we are not only born of water, but we are being born of the spirit. God says, I will put my spirit in you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to obey my rules. In other words, God swears that he himself will make this work of renewal in the lives of his people firm and everlasting. And that work will be firm and everlasting because it won't be God laying upon them a new principle from the outside. It'll be God himself stepping into their lives on the inside and saying, I'm going to clean house here. I'm going to make you want to walk in my statutes. I'm going to give you a heart that no longer desires sin. I'm going to give you a heart that desires my will above all else. That's the kind of change that Jesus is saying must happen in the lives of those who belong to his kingdom. You know, if you keep in mind what follows Ezekiel 36, what's in Ezekiel 37? Anybody want to shout it out? Anybody know? Put you on the spot. It's a valley of dry bones. And what happens in that valley of dry bones? Ezekiel prophesies to it. Those bones come back together. Sinews form. Muscle comes back on. Flesh covers it. And you've got a bunch of reformed bodies that have no life in them. And then what does God tell Ezekiel to do? Command, can these dead bones live, Ezekiel? I don't know, Lord, you know. Prophesy to the wind. Prophesy to the wind, O son of man, that the breath of God might blow upon these slain, that they might live. Isn't that what Jesus is referring to in John chapter 3, verse 8? When he says, the wind blows where it wishes, you hear its sound, you don't know where it comes from or where it's going, so it is everyone who's born of the Spirit. Nicodemus needed real, radical, substantial change. <laughs> if anyone was an embodiment of a lifeless body, that's presented in Ezekiel 37, it was Nicodemus. On the outside, he looked like he had been made whole by God. He had the righteous life. He had the religion. He looked like he was part of the true people of God. But the Spirit of God had not yet blown upon him and caused him to live. Very fascinating fulfillment of Ezekiel 37 being hinted at there in John 3. Anyway, this change is what Jesus is saying must happen in the lives of his people who would belong to his kingdom. We got just a few minutes here, but let me try to get through these last two. All right. Number four, 
this new birth, this radical change, is something that must be experienced. Jesus says in verse 3, unless one is born again, he cannot enter, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now this parallel with natural birth is what makes clear that the new birth is experiential. How do I know that? Who in this room has been born? Physically. Who in this room experienced physical birth? All of your hands should be up. You've been physically born. And guess what? You experienced physical birth, even if you can't remember what that experience was like. You had an experience of being born. Jesus takes that and parallels the new birth, the spiritual birth, to that. Just as physical birth was something we experienced, so also spiritual birth must be something we experience. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to experience regeneration in the act of being born again, but it does mean we will experience the fruits of having been born again, if we truly have been born again. Just like with physical birth, you experience the fruit of having been physically born. You are alive right now. You are thinking with your brains, I hope. I hope I haven't lulled you to sleep yet, but you are, your heart is beating, you are breathing, your brain is functioning, you are going to get up from these seats in a minute, and you're going to walk, and you're going to go drive home. You have life in you, and that is fruit, that is evidence of the fact that you have been physically born. So it is with the spiritual birth. There will be fruit of that experience if it has actually taken place. It's just like John 3, 8. Jesus compares the new birth to the blowing of the wind. What do you feel when the wind blows? You have an experience. You feel the wind blowing upon you. There's a real, tangible interaction between you and the wind. You can't control the wind, but you can tell when the wind is blowing. Jesus says it's the same way with the Holy Spirit. You can't control the Spirit. You can't manipulate the Spirit. But you can tell when the Spirit is blowing upon you. We just sang a song. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free and I rose. I went forth and I followed Thee. Is that not talking about an experience of salvation? Did you mean those words when you sang them? Or were you just singing them? Is that a real experience in your life? Or are you just, are you just adapting? Are you just taking the words of someone else's experience with God and singing them as if they were your own? Or is that really, are those words really reflective of a true, genuine experience you've had with God that you continue to recognize has taken place in your life now? Have you truly come to know what it means, Romans 5, 4, to have the love of God poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit? Have you truly come to know what 2 Corinthians 1, verse 22 is talking about when it talks about God sealing our hearts with His Holy Spirit. The new birth must be personally experienced, just as the wind 
is personally experienced, just as birth itself is personally experienced. Now, last point. Thank you for being patient with me. Last point. The new birth is entirely out of our control. The new birth is entirely out of our control. It is beyond the ability of our flesh to produce it. That's what's being emphasized in verse 3. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. That's a passive thing. That's something that's happening to you. Verse 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. In other words, it must be something produced by the spirit. Verse 8, the freedom of God and bringing this work about in the lives of sinners is being represented by the blowing of the wind. The wind blows where it wishes. You cannot control it. You cannot force it. You can't even understand exactly where it comes from or where it's going. But that is the same way it is with the Holy Spirit. He blows where He wants to blow. Jesus is here exalting the sovereignty of God in the salvation of every sinner. <clears throat> that fact is unnerving for many people. Number one, because we don't like not to be in control of our destiny, right? The Henley's words in Invictus are the, the, the battle cry of the fallen human heart. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I have an indomitable spirit and I thank whatever gods may be out there that I have it. I will conquer. I will overcome. I will endure. My will will be done. That's Invictus. Oh, we hate the idea that we are not in control of our eternal destinies. And more than that, we hate the fact that God is the one who is in control of our eternal destinies. We're going to come back to things like this next week. But let me just end on three reasons why I think Jesus emphasizes the sovereignty of God here. Number one, he emphasizes the sovereignty of God in order to exalt the absolute freedom of God in everything. And let me just say in summary, because we're way out of time, if the freedom of God is something that bothers your soul, then you need to think about the state of your soul. If God's freedom bothers you, you need to think about where you are spiritually. Number two, Jesus exalts the sovereignty of God and salvation to humble the pride of men. To say very clearly to Nicodemus and to us that God is not beholden to us. He does not have to do what we want Him to do. He cannot be manipulated to do our will. He has mercy on whom He will and He has compassion on whom He will. And we cannot force his hand to do otherwise. He is absolutely free and uncontrollable by us. Man, that makes us nervous when we can't control things. And then thirdly, Jesus emphasizes the sovereignty of God to force us to realize that there is only one hope for the salvation of a sinner. And that is utter, wholehearted, self-abandoning and hope-filled reliance upon God. That's it. You must be born again in order to enter into the kingdom of God. But you cannot manipulate it or control it in the slightest. So what are you supposed to do? 
You're supposed to put your faith and your trust in the good and loving God who is able and willing to bring the new birth about. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 11, 26 and following. Go read that when you get home. May you put your hope in God. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that you speak through rocks and donkeys and can cause your word to truly be heard through sinners like me. God, I pray that you would bless your people with your word. I pray they would not be exasperated. God, I ask that you would renew them Comfort them by your spirit. Show them the evidence of the new birth in their lives. Let them know that you've truly drawn near to their souls. That you've drawn them near to you, God. That you've given them new life in Christ. And let them rejoice in that reality. And I pray that we would rejoice now as we sing our closing hymn. May it be a song of praise to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hear the benediction from Philippians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Verses 3, I guess. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And may you go in that hope and the, real, the reality of that peace in Jesus' name. Amen.